All right, good morning. We're glad you're here. Okay, I want to start this morning with a story, a true story, about a guy named Steve Callahan. This story is about 25 years ago when it happened, the events happened in his life. He was an avid sailor and designer of sailboats, actually even taught people how to build sailboats. And so he finally decided, you know, I want to build something for myself for a little bit more adventure. So he spent one and a half years building a sailboat for himself. It ended up being a 21-foot um, size sailboat. And he wanted to compete with other big sailboats on this big race that was from the U.K. all the way to the Caribbean. And so he, he starts off, and he has trouble, like, right off. So he ends up having to go to Spain, and he parks himself in Spain, fixing his sailboat again and deciding to go. And this time, clearly by himself, because the other boats have gone kept on. And so about a week, seven days into the trip from uh, Portugal, um, he starts, he hits a really, really bad storm. And so he's a sailor. He feels good about his boat. He goes underneath and goes to sleep during the storm because he figures the sailboat's going to just rock it out. But what happens, and he thinks that that's what it was, he got hit by a whale. And the sailboat just crashed into pieces. And before um, he completely went down, he was able to salvage a few things. He salvaged a five-and-a-half-foot round uh, life raft, you know, one of those little boats. Part of the mass of his um, the sails part, he was able to um, get a sleeping bag. And then he died for his emergency duffel bag that has some life-saving stuff in there. And the rest of the, sh the sailboat just went down. So it was a kind of scary situation. And so then, um, you know, the Coast Guard go looking for him. They look for two weeks, and they figure the guy's drowned. He didn't make it. But for 76 days, he floated in the Atlantic Ocean. And slowly, it took him back to where he wanted to go, which is the Caribbean. But I want to tell you a little bit about his story. While he was on this raft, this raft was continually being pounded by storms, sharks, trying to break up his raft and he beat it with the stuff that he had there and um, you know it's salt on his body all the time he had tremendous horrific burns from the sun but his most gripping difficulty for Steve was his thirst he had in his duffel bag eight pints of fresh water now you guys know those of you who are into health know that eight pints is the recommended amount of water that a person should have for two days Four pints a day is what you should be drinking every day. Those of you who are not, confess it right now, repent, and start drinking more water. Anyway, so he had enough for two days on this trip. And so um, he got very creative. In his duffel bag, there actually was a distiller, you know, to change salted water into fresh water, but it was broken. So he works it out, and he gets it. And so drop by drop, he's able to get the seawater to change and he could get close to eight ounces of water from that gizmo a day so that helped a bit but I want you to hear what he says in his journal nine days after being at sea my body's craving for water is building I would give anything for a drink but I can only afford an occasional mouthful I open my third pint of fresh water five pints left maybe 15 days to live if I can catch fresh fish to supplement my food intake. Otherwise, I might have as many as 10 days left. If hunger is the witch, thirst is her curse. It is nagging, screaming thirst that causes me to watch each minute pass to wait for the next sip. I've had only one cup of water for each of the first nine days. 
daytime temperatures are in the 80s and 90s, hours pass between single swallows of water. Then a month later, this is what he writes, nausea strangles me. My tongue feels like a toad in my mouth. I can stand it no longer. Desperately, I pull out a pint of my precious reserve, unscrew the cap, and pull on the bag. The water sits in my cheek for a moment before I screw the cap and pull on the bag. The water sits in my cheek for a moment before I push my toady tongue upward and squirt it down my throat in an effort to douse the blaze in my belly. Another mouthful. The fire inside of me flickers another, then another, and then the pint of bag, the pint bag has collapsed. My paramaniac surrenders and nausea is drowned for a moment. I'm able to sleep. So he survived on a diet of raw fish and a ration about one glass of water a day. And he dropped from his normal weight to about a third of what his weight was by the time he was done with or the ordeal. And finally, about day 76, he gets picked up by some Creole sailors that were fishing close to where he actually wanted to end, close to the Caribbean. And this, this account and the whole story is in a book that he wrote called Adrift, where he describes in this book his very first meal that was given to him after being rescued. And he sees this tray of food and this tall glass of water, and he can't believe his eyes, and he starts to laugh. He eats and he drinks and he laughs his whole way through that meal after being in dire straits for two and a half months. Okay, so why am I telling you this story? You know, a few weeks ago, Randy introduced to us a current series called Living Life to the Fullest, or Living Life Fully. And he told us he wanted us to consider what it takes to live a life that's full, where we are experiencing God and experiencing the life that he wanted us to live. And then he shared from verse John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and might have it to the full. And Randy talked about that word full in its full meaning, no pun intended, means abundant, beyond, excessive, much more and superfluous, to overflowing, to run over. And then what he did is he took that, definition and put it back with that fuller understanding into John John and it would sound something like this I have come that you might experience a life that is so full and abundant that I excuse me I'll take this thing off or you're going to be there that it will overflow everywhere you go to everyone around you then the last two weeks Marianne has been talking about what that life would look like what would a life look like that is moving forward in God and one of her illustrations, she used a balloon. Remember? And she told you that this balloon is kind of what our life looks like before it's filled with the breath of God. It's deflated. It has no form. No, it's void. You can't even really tell sometimes what shape is going to end up being. And then when that balloon is infilled by God, by his presence, then it has form and you understand what it was for and what it does. Now, I'm not that good at blowing balloons. I'm really kind of bad. I get a headache really easy, and I feel like I got to sit down. But I have grandkids, and grandkids expect grandma and grandpa to be able to do things that they can't do, which is the case probably for the next 10 years. <laughs> and so, you know, they'll come to me, and they'll ask me, Grandmama, can you please fill up our balloon? So I, I, I have learned that if I stretch that thing and stretch that thing and stretch that thing, then it's a little bit easier to blow it up, right? Now, you ever felt like your life is one big, long stretch? Right? And you're thinking, I don't think I can take this one minute longer. And then God comes and he fills you up and he empowers you and you go on. What do you know? That stretching process is part of the very thing we need to grow up. 
to live the life fully that God wants for us. It's what gives us, gets us to that place of purpose. Now, when we're thinking about purpose, as Randy talked about, and the design that God created us for, Jesus, there's a lot of stories in there, a lot of pictures, but I just want to hone in on a couple that are paramount in the foundation of this church. The Great Commandment. One of the religious scholars came up hearing the lively exchanges of question and answers and seeing how sharp Jesus was with the answers, he puts him this question. Which is most important of all the commandments? And Jesus said, the first in importance is, listen Israel, the Lord your God is one. So love the Lord God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy from Mark 12, 18, uh, 28 to 30. This is the message version. But the first element described here by Jesus is God word. And here at the venue, we talked about that. We refer to it as encountering God. It has to do with our relationship with God. It has to do with um, connecting with him. In an abbreviated form, we'll say the word upward. is our upward motion with God. So what's our part in connecting with God? I mean, do we have any part? Or is it all up to God? You know, God just does it all sovereignly. You know, he just does it, and we have no part. If we have a part, what is that? And that's what I want to talk about in the next couple of weeks. I want to talk about our part in experiencing and encountering God. And particularly, when I'm talking about it, I want you to fix your mind on the story of Steve Callahan, the one that I started today's talk with. And here's a man who's starving to death, right? He's dying of thirst, adrift in this big desert of liquid. He's down to uh, under 100 pounds. And Steve is really a picture of every person on planet Earth. Every man, woman, and child is Steve if he does not have a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. Now, the reason why I want you to fix your mind on Steve as I talk in the next couple of weeks is because I want you to understand that you don't really get what prayer is if you think of it as anything else than somebody who's adrift, clueless, needs help, and wants to connect with a living, loving God. I mean, for some people, as I talk to them about prayer, you can just see this, like, shame and guilt start come on them, like, I know I should, I do should do it more, and I'm not, and, yeah, you know, life's so busy. I mean, between my computer and taking care of the kids and going to work, and I, the day's gone. And you just feel this shame being built up on them. And I want you to get the picture of Steve Callahan when I talk about prayer, that this is not about you performing or failing at a test. Okay, this is not about some obligation that you have to. You know, if somebody were to ask you, how is your prayer life? Or what is God telling you in prayer? Or how's your devotional life? You might just say, mm-hmm. you know, you might not want to say anything because you're embarrassed to say what's going on. It's not a standard that we fail to meet. We haven't flunked any test. It shouldn't be a burdensome, I know I should. You know, we hear stories of great Christians like Martin Luther, right? Prays two to three hours a day. And he admittedly says that when a day is like super busy, it's going to be super busy, he spends more time in prayer. You're like, whoa. Okay? So I want you to remove that misconception that prayer is about a test that you failed, a standard that you haven't met up to. Think of Steve totally on his own out there trying to survive, okay? Think of that as a picture. 
And worst of all is to have the conception that prayer is some kind of merit badge or a word, you know, that you are bigger and better than everybody else in this church because you spend a lot of time in prayer. I think that one, that kind of conception is really stinky too. Today when we start this talk on prayer, get rid of that association of prayer being a test, a standard, or a merit badge. Instead, I want you to think of someone who's starving to death, dying of hunger, adrift in a big ocean. Think of Steve, 76 days lost in the ocean. We pray not because we have to, but we get to. It's not our way, our mechanism to get you all primed up, not prayer or nor worship, all primed up for the sacrificial giving, the tithe, or to get you primed up for the teaching. It's a privilege we get to. After 76 days, when that tray of food was presented to Steve and that tall glass of water came to him, you know very well that he did not say, do I have to? I mean, do I have to eat again? I mean, it was like he got you, and he laughed away himself all the way through it. And that is what I want us as a people to experience in prayer and in worship. We get to. After 76 days of I haven't done this, I get to. You know, one of the things that happens with me in my devotional time is like, you know, if three days go by, oh, my gosh, I'm the pastor. What's the wreck? What's wrong with me? You know, like, ah, oh, how did that happen, right? And I just go to God, and like he says, Clara, I'm just so glad you came to me. I've just been waiting to bless you. Thanks for giving me a chance to bless you today. Right? It's not like counting one, two, three, all three days. You know, wait for you two weeks, oh, you know, 76 days. He does not care. He is there for you and wants to present to you food and water to drink. Okay? So can we just say no more, I have to, no more guilt trip, a test I've failed, or some merit that I need to have because I'm a somebody in this church? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much for uh, examples like Steve Callahan, Lord, real-life situations, Lord, that point to you, Lord. Father, thank you for that vision he had when he was on the, the wrath of heaven and hell and he just was blown away. Thank you for your mercy in his life. And Father, thank you for your mercy in our life. I pray for a spirit of teaching, a gifting of teaching to be here present today, Lord, and of learning and of instruction, Lord, that changes our misconceptions, and brings us, Father, to a close relationship with you. Father, I pray for our guests that they would be filled with joy this morning and that whatever you want to, to say particularly to them, Father, would be spoken to them in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to look at Psalm 63. And this is from the message version, so I really kind of like it. So I'm going to read it to you guys. God, you're my God. I can't. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such hunger and thirst for God traveling across dry and weary deserts. So here I am in the place of worship, eyes open, drinking in your strength and glory. In your generous love, I am really living at last. My lips brim praises like fountains, and I bless you every time I take a breath. My arms wave like banners of praise to you. I eat my fill of prime rib and gravy. Mm. I smack my lips. It's time to shout praises. 
If I'm sleepless at midnight, I spend the hours in grateful reflection because you've always stood up for me. I'm free to run and play. I hold on to you for dear life, and you hold me steady as a post. You know, reading this psalm, you kind of get the tone that the psalmist is writing after a victory from a battle or he just got married. But this psalm has a title, and this is the title. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah, fleeing from his son Absalom. Wow. And he's like, what? Should I read the psalm again? I mean, does this connect with the title? I mean, if you read a title like that, what would you expect for it to say after that? Yeah, exactly. But look what he does. If we read the historical background of this particular psalm, it's from 2 Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel in there, you see what's going on. Absalom, one of uh, David's errant children, decides he's going to take over the, the, the planet and take over the, the throne. And so he starts a little revolution, a coup, and he goes to get the, the palace. And so David, King David, leaves, flees for his life, and he takes with him some really loyal soldiers with him. And that is the context of this. And he goes to Judea, which is southeast from Jerusalem. And that place is a desert. I mean, it's a big mountain with not one blade of grass. It's a ravine with rocks. There's no brooks. There's no streams. There's no rain. It's just like death. And this is the context of which David writes this psalm. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly will I seek you. For my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This version is one that you're probably a little bit more familiar with. Literally, it means a dry and weary land that exhausts you. Because there's nothing there. David finds himself in a place where he's fleeing from his son. McKay's, could you imagine fleeing from your son? Because he's after you. Blake or, or Trent. The grief would be tremendous. I mean, who cares about the throne? This is your son that you loved. So can you imagine the, that this exhaustion, this weariness, was not just a you know, physical place, which it was. It was a metaphor of his soul, his emotion, the place where he was at. I mean, do any of you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're in a wilderness? Things are kind of dry? You ever feel adrift like Steve Callahan? All of us at different times, we're going to find ourselves in stage six that Randy talked about a few years, a few weeks ago, right? Stage six was that um, prolonged spiritual discontentment. We're going to feel ourselves bouncing in and out there sometimes, prolonged, sometimes short period. I mean, maybe for you, the issue for you is a chronic illness that the doctors can't manage. Maybe your wilderness is a financial ruin, mortgage, business catastrophe. Maybe your wilderness is a personal betrayal. A friend has stabbed you in the back. She didn't come through for you after you gave so much to her. Maybe your wilderness is the sorrow of seeing a child that you love, that you grew up in the Lord, turn his back on God and the church. Maybe it's the wilderness of terminal illness. But our God is so gone. God is so good that he desires to experience let us experience him in our wilderness and to use it for good, to use it for the very stretching of that balloon to get us to where he's taking us. And also to realize that we're in the midst of that wilderness, 
we come to realize that our level of intimacy with God is insufficient to get us through life. You know, we coast week after week, and some, for some of us, our contact is when we go to church or maybe when we go to community group. And that's, that's it. I mean, we'll pray when we need a parking space or pray when there's a crisis. But suddenly we're thrown into the wilderness, we're thrown into circumstances that are not cool, and we become aware of our spiritual condition. And often our wilderness experience was way more than the crises. That wilderness experience was to point to our dying of thirst and of hunger for God. You know, we keep pushing and pushing and overcoming and functioning, but when we get to the wilderness, we just can't anymore. We can't balance life anymore. It's unstable. And the only way we can go is upward. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, this statement is so true. This statement is true for every man, woman, and child across the face of the earth, whether you're from China or Thailand. This is the truth. You know, Pascal puts it this way. Inside every human being is a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped void. There's this grand canyon void for God in each of us. And we try to fill the Grand Canyon with a marble. A marble of entertainment, a marble of another relationship, a marble of watching Bigger Loser and dreaming that we could be like that, or American Idol, a computer game, another purchase, another pair of shoes. Marbles. My soul, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Very personal. Every person has been built with the capacity to thirst. And as image bearers, we were made in the God, we have a capacity of thirst for God. Each one of us. Every person you meet on the street, whether they live in a 35,000 square foot house at the Dominion or live in the streets when you go to feed them at, you know, a street ministry. They have this capacity to thirst for God. They have a grand canyon inside them, and please do not give them a marble. Give him what they need. Give her what she needs, which is God. Relationship with him. I love this C.S. Lewis. He says this. Do what they will, then. We remain conscious of a desire for God, which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? A man's physical hunger does not prove that that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where edible sustenance exists. In the same way, though I do not believe I wish I did, that my desire for paradise with God proves that I shall enjoy it. I think it is a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will enjoy paradise with God. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomena called falling in love occurred in an utterly sexless world. The fact that we're thirsty is an encounter when we're in that place of the wilderness 
demonstrates that we're starving for a God. It suggests that there is a God who wants to fill that emptiness in us. Now, granted, there are times we're not even aware that that's what's going on. We're not conscious that right now I need more of God. Okay, when you're remorseful about something, something that you should have, you could have, you didn't do, that you should have done, you know what I mean, one of those places, and you feel remorse about it. You know, sometimes we don't connect that that remorse is evidence that there's a God that wants to make that right, to remove that guilt and that shame from your life with him. We're not conscious of that. We're not conscious of the heartaches of dissatisfaction, discontentment, is an indicator that we need God. I mean, think of the things that you're discontent about, angry or bitter about. You know, if you're married and your spouse doesn't listen to you, that gets annoying. You're a young adult, and everything you say is dismissed. They talk over you, and you feel disrespected. How do you feel when you go to pay your bills and you look online and you're like, it's not matching up. It's not going to match up. You know, I'm not sure that we're conscious of the fact of our discontentment, our frustration about other people, our fears, our search for love, comfort, respect, is actually an indicator that we need God, more friendship with God. What we tend to do is to continually dull our hunger and thirst for God with junk. And it kind of numbs us to the greater need that we have. How many of you have seen the documentary uh, Super Size Me? Great. It's, it's this film about um, it's attacking junk food restaurants, McDonald's and those kinds of places. And really, a Morgan Spurtlock movie is, to me, a spiritual <laughs> metaphor about us. Okay, we just fill ourselves, our paying for gods are filled with junk food. So overstuffed and so overloaded that we don't even know that what we really need is a vegetable. Richard Swenson, a doctor, wrote a fantastic book about overloaded Americans. It's called Margins. I just read it this week. It's a good book. It's a good read. And he lists some of the specific overloads that we currently are experiencing in 21st century America. This is, this is kind of a long quote, but this is a quote from him. We Americans constantly live on overload, activity overload. We're booked up for weeks in advance. In an attempt to squeeze more things in, we try to do two to three things at the same time. I've done that. I show up for something and realize I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Overbooked. Choice overload. In 1980, there were 12,000 items in the average supermarket. Today, the average supermarket has 40,000 items. Commitment overload. We have more commitments than we have time. Debt overload. Currently, every sector of society is washed in red ink. We're simply incapable of saying no. Decision overload. Which soda? Which pizza topping? Which toothpaste? Mint toothpaste with whitener or tartar control gel. Expectation overload. The world should know no boundaries. If you dreamed it, you can do it. Do you understand how that's pressure on you? Fatigue overload. We're tired. Our leisure time is exhausting. Our vacations are so exhausting that we say, I need a vacation from vacation. Right? Information overload, media overload, noise pollution overload, possession overload, waste overload, work overload. You know, we have doctors here 
when people come into them and they're complaining about their back or their head or their thrashes or whatever, you know, they look and it's like, you know what, this person's under stress. A lot of stress. If you could remove some of the stress, probably these things, these manifestations would just disappear. How would you describe your life? Would you say supersized or overloaded? Does that sound anything like yours? I read this book and I was like, oh my goodness, I've got to simplify. Last night, Randy and I were going to go for a date. I said, I just, I just want to stay home. I don't want to spend any money. I don't want to do anything. I just want to stay home and just relax and just be. It's partially because of this book. I was just reading this book and I was thinking, yeah, that's me. Now, can you imagine that there might be some connection with our supersized, overloaded life and men and women not being conscious, conscious that their basic thirst is really for God? You ever thought that? And that's my connection for today. Now, David had room for God. In verse 6, he says, Oh, my God, I remember you. <laughs> I think of you through the watches of the night. If I were to ask you, what do you do in bed, the ones that we could talk about, I'm looking through 150 channels on my cable TV. I'm working on my computer, right? I'm looking at Facebook from my bed. We don't even have space for God in our bed. Becoming conscious that what we really thirst for God is a gift of God's mercy. It's God's mercy. That's his part to show us, you need me. I'm here. Stop stuffing your life with junk. Simplify and let me have a part. John 6:44 says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. Now, if you've awakened to this, you've come to realize, wow, this is true about me. You, you realize one more relationship is not going to re- make me any more complete. One more closing the deal is not going to make me any more satisfied. Your heartache, your discontent, your frustration is symptomatic of a deeper thirst for God than you guys have experienced the mercy of God. That is the mercy of God when he shows you that. And you know, God's probably gone before you, even led you to the wilderness in order to get you to that place of realizing, I need God. I'm thirsty for God. I'm hungry for God. I need more of God. And that's why I would want to pray. I get to drink that tall glass of water. Okay, you know I like C.S. Lewis. Well, here's one more. Well, actually, I do two more, but this one. Pain is God's megaphone. It awakens the sleepy world to our need for God. You know, um, pain really just does a number to our self-sufficiency, right? Our coping mechanisms, everything that we feel is secure in our life, that pain just kind of shakes that up. It makes us drop what we're holding on to, the thinking it's going to be our salvation, and embrace was available to us, which is God. Now, you guys know what a saint is in the biblical sense. A saint is someone who's very aware that they need God and that they're going to God to fill their thirst, to fill their hunger. That's a saint. Now, we read the stories of the Bible, and we kind of magnify the characters. You know, Moses. You know, even when he talks, you know, I can't do it, but, you know, Moses. and God, you know, all that stuff, right? Moses is a big deal guy. You know what? Moses did not have boundaries. Oh, my goodness. He was not very emotionally healthy. He didn't think too highly about himself. Right? I mean, you look at these big guys, and their families were not happy little families that you would want to watch their story on television. They were dysfunctional. David, Absalom. But these big giants had one thing. 
They were saints. They got to the point where they realized, I need God. I, I can't do this life without God. And that is what makes them a saint. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where, when can I go and meet with him? You know, Lord, I'm not a camel. I cannot get to the desert on myself without a drink and my self-sufficiency. I'm, I'm a deer that's dying of thirst with her tongue hanging out. Okay, God doesn't call us camels. He calls us deers. So we could understand that capacity. You know, right now, it's dry in our city. And I have seen during the day, I, I just like was so sad. During the day on the fast street of Heath Roads, very fast, a lot of cars there. During the day, a deer by the roadside picking at something green. Deers are scary animals. They don't come out during the day where there's traffic going right next to them. It's not too smart because they're going to get hit, right? But that's how desperate they are for fluid and liquid right now. And Paul, you know, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he's very aware, I am terminally thirsty. I'm never going to get this quenched unless I'm with him every moment of the day. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead, oh, that I may know Christ. You know, some of our hymns talk about this. Today, the worship team played the song, Hungry. Hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy and I'm empty. But I know your love does not run dry. Broken, I run to you, for my arms are open wide. Sounds like worship to me. I'm weary, but I know your touch restores my life. I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. That's all he wants. He does not want your resume, your accomplishments, your titles. He wants you. So what are we going to do about this? Oh, no, here comes the to-do list. I know it's coming. One more thing that Clara's going to tell us to do, relief, no. I'm going to tell you to stop doing something, to make space. That's what I'm going to tell you. Stop doling your thirst and hunger for God with junk. That's it. Stop that. Close the laptop. Turn off the phone. Don't text one more moment. Be still and know that he's God. Stop doling your hunger with God substitutes, with fake God substitutes. When you feel heartache, that is a signal you need God. When you feel discontentment, pain, that is your signal you need God. When you're frustrated, you're frustrated with your life in San Antonio. Why am I still here? Indication, you need God. If you're anxious, if you're angry, when you're restless inside, those are signals that you need more of God because God is here. And if he's here, there can be joy experienced in the here and the now. He's the God with us. Not that I will be the God when you move to Europe. Do not dull that feeling of frustration, discontent, heartache, anxiety by supersizing with another relationship, another movie, another text, another purchase. Shut it off. 
and just say, I'm thirsty, God. I'm hungry for you. I don't want to dull my life anymore with stuff. Now listen to this last quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from a sermon called The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are we being satisfied with the mud puddles? Not really. And here comes God offering a tall glass of water and prime rib himself. You know, and in some of us, because we've maybe been in the church, we're like, well, I've got to know more about God. I need to talk more about God, or I need to read more about God. You know, those things are all good, reading, talking, figuring him out. That's good. But that is not the prime objective, because there are a lot of really smart, intelligent theologians that have not a clue. They don't know to run to God for satisfaction. Notice King David's words, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. It's very personal, possessive. You're my God. You're the one I'm going to go to. I'm connecting with you. We need to encounter the Holy Spirit in that way. Prayer is not climbing up Mount Everest with this huge path, this heavy burden that I have to do because I'm a Christian. Prayer is not like trying to prepare yourself for an interview for a job where every single word counts. Prayer is like drinking after being thirsty for a long time, eating after being hungry for a long time, 76 days adrift in the sea. Prayer is like opening the door and prayer is responding positively to Jesus. Revelation 3.20 says, Here I am, I'm standing and knocking at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Worship team, will you come forward? And, you know, that invitation from God is for those who are beginning a relationship with God and those who have been in relationship with God. Because that verb is, I am knocking, I am at the door, I am inviting, I am welcoming you, I'm wanting to. That is the tense of those verbs. It's not a one-time experience. If you're hungry or thirsty, discontent, frustrated, in pain, in a wilderness, Here's Jesus today, knocking. Will you let me in? I want to have a meal with you. I want to fill you up, not with junk food, but something that will last. Well, I've asked the worship team to play a song, and then after that we'll do a little bit of ministry. But I want you to close your eyes and allow the worship team to sing to you. I don't want the words, Daniel, okay, no words. Just let them minister to you. And let their song be your song.
thirst and a hunger for God and you would like him to satisfy you, why don't you stand? Let him fill you. You're desperate for him. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You want to start a relationship of finding out who he is. You want to establish more intimacy with him. Put your hands out so the Holy Spirit can fill you with himself. He's a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The comforter. The one who empowers and guides. The one who meets our need. Come Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Fill us with you, overflowing, overwhelming, Father, so that wherever we go, we splash on one another. Because there's so much of you, Lord, in us. Fill our need, Father. Fill, remove the fear with your love. Remove the sadness with your joy. Conviction, Lord. Conviction to do something with what you've given us. Fill us, Lord. Empower us with your grace. God respond to what we're thirsty and hungry for him. Isaiah 55 Come all of you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy listen listen to me and eat what is good and you and your soul will delight in the riches of fair give ear and come to me hear me that your soul may live I will make an everlasting an everlasting covenant with you. And then 55:6 Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thought. Let him to turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to over God for he will freely pardon thank you my name is David for those of you that don't know me In six days, I'm going to be 56 years old. That's not a invitation for whatever. But um, the message I received virtually all my life, and much of it 
self-reinforced is that I had no mechanical ability. And while I'm not capable at this time of tearing down an engine and putting it back together or wiring a house or anything like that, I've seen enough basic stuff done that, you know, it shouldn't be a problem to do stuff. And so I somehow, a couple of weeks ago, just went for it and did a little project and built some shelves and stuff, and it turned out great. You know, um, and I'll, that'll have more meaning in just a minute. Um, you know, the Bible's very clear, very specific, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you've probably heard love is spelled T-I-M-E, time. You may have also heard, if not, you're going to hear it now, how faith is spelled. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Risk. And I want to encourage everyone here, including myself, that each of us have latent skills and abilities and gifts and talents that are not being fully utilized. Some of that's simply due to age. Some of that's due to opportunity. Some of that's due to the messages that you've been heard, that you've been hearing all your life, like I heard about not having mechanical ability. You know, Grandma Moses. I don't know the exact age she was, but she was in her 60s, I believe, when she started painting. Of course, now she's a world-renowned painter. You know. And they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's a lie. I don't care how old the dog is or how young the dog is. You can learn new, new tricks, right, Bob? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, just thinking about everyone here, and um, I know a little bit about most of you know a lot about some of you. There's some I don't know much yet, but um, some of you have started school in the last few years. Some of you have gotten married. You have children. You've changed jobs. You've changed domiciles. You have moved. You've started a business started coming to church or you came back to church or you've started coming to a community group or you've stepped up in leadership somewhere in the church I mean look at Danny back there running PowerPoint 11 years old think anybody else around here could do that too nothing personal Danny just, just taking away excuses that's all And I was reminded of, there's an intro to a song that David Crowder recorded. And it goes like this. 
I'm so bored with little gods while standing on the edge of something large. And those marbles that Clara was referring to, those are the little gods in our lives with little G's. And we're all standing on the edge in our own way. We're all standing on the edge of something larger. Something larger than where we are right now. And I just wanted to invite you to take a risk. And I promise you that God will meet you when you exercise your faith. Can we pray that? Go and get it out. Lord, I thank you that as you, when you saw us, Lord, you saw us as we can be, not as we were or even are. Lord, and you don't, you while you hold us and guide us and lead us, Lord, you're not standing still. You're carrying us. And that's movement. Lord, I thank you for how you've moved in every life here, Lord. And I invite you to move in an even deeper way. In each life here. Lord, I ask just for uh, your encouragement for each of us, Lord, as we uh, walk out our daily lives that you would receive our baby steps of risk our larger steps of risk as faith and be pleased with us Lord and Just encourage each with the results of that, of taking that risk. And let us see, Lord, even as it happens, or in hindsight, Lord, where you've been acting in our lives, and that, you know, if you've done it before, you'll do it again. And that... Each step would just lead, would lead us down the road in our service to you and our service to your kingdom. In our service to those that don't know you yet. Amen. Turn to the people next to you that are standing and find out what's going on and pray for them. You see somebody alone there? Just if there's an oddball number, then go ahead and do that. Yeah, there we go. Good. And if you need prayer about something else not related to this morning's teaching, please come forward, and there'll be some of us here that can pray for you and bless you.